0: Hello, greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples in Los Angeles. We want to be of service to you. If we can answer any questions, if we can pray for you, any way we can help encourage you in your relationship with God, please let us know at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. During many of the parts of the days of this COVID-19 pandemic, we have this soundbite that kind of summarized the whole perspective, faith over fear. It was used very often in terms of resisting lockdown orders or mask mandates, and also, and especially in a Christian context, uh, resistance to restrictions on assemblies uh, for Christians. And there is a presumption here that those who wanted such orders or mandates or restrictions were living in fear of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that those who were truly faithful would choose faith in God over fear of the virus. And there might be some uh, helpful critique and challenge in that perspective, but it's a very sad irony that in many of those who wanted to tell us faith over fear in terms of the virus uh, seemed to choose the way of fear over political developments, over the COVID 19 vaccine as it came out. And they also fell prey to many conspiracy theories, all because of the question of whom they had put their trust in. And the situation happens to, you know, in 2020 and 2021 to exemplify the challenge and issue that surrounds faith and fear in our relationship to both. But We need to be very clear that what happened in 2020 and 2021 weren't necessarily new. It was just one way of looking at the situation. It was one uh, example that we could use among many where this question of faith over fear and what does it mean to fear? What does it mean to have faith? And what does it look like to have faith over fear? Uh, can be discussed. And so it's really important for us to consider this, perhaps in light of what's happened in the past couple of years, but also just in general. Is fear always bad or wrong? What makes fear the problem? How can we live by faith? And what does it really look like to choose faith over fear? And it become very easy for Christians to buy into a very oversimplified understanding about fear that really just condemns it. Christians have been taught over and over again they shouldn't be afraid. They shouldn't fear. They get the very strong impression that fear is very much the antithesis to faith. And it makes it seem that fear is always bad or wrong. And we can understand that, especially when it is constantly said and is not wrong, that uh, do not fear is the most frequently commanded thing in the Bible. It's about 365 times. And that, that that's a lot. And so we get the impression strongly from that, that we shouldn't fear. And yet, at the same time, the Bible also commands and says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that's Jesus himself speaking in Matthew 10 and verse 28. The Hebrews author, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Hebrews 10 verse 31, and Peter will say, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, live out the time of your temporary residence here in reverence. And so we have there words of fear and reverence. And their protests will come up. We'll see. Well, what you're talking about with those verses, where the Bible is saying that fear really means to revere. Okay, sure. But what is fear? Fear is a very primal and hardwired part of humanity it's the perception of danger and the response to it. And we most often associate fear with terror, perception of danger to our lives, and that stimulates our fight-or-flight reflex. But reverence is also on the spectrum of fear, because, I mean, what's the danger in not showing appropriate honor and respect to a figure of authority, right? Uh, That's why you revere that person, because they could hurt you. I mean, after all, I mean, look at, what he's saying in Matthew 11, uh, fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. Um, there's certainly uh, some reverence there, certainly, but there is the perception of danger there. And that is something that is something really being emphasized there by Jesus. But So, it's kind of pedantic to suggest that, well, reverence <laughs> is not fear, uh, because... There certainly uh, are distinctions we could make between reverence and terror, but they're both part of what we would consider fear. But why is fear a thing that we deal with anyway? And the reality, whether we want to admit it or not, is that humans need a healthy fear mechanism so that we don't do dumb things and die. Uh, If you've seen many videos on the internet, uh, if you've seen... Uh, what humans do uh the darwin awards as they're called for the ways that people die uh as i'm speaking to you now uh one of the things that is being shared on the internet is a gentleman who uh started using a trampoline of barbed wire and of course suffered the consequences that you would immediately recognize would happen if one were to attempt to use a trampoline made of barbed wire uh when we talk about a healthy fear mechanism, we rarely call it fear. We call it more like a healthy respect for limitations or something of that sort. And it's because we live in a particular reality that the universe and many aspects of this earth are trying to kill us. That uh, uh, preserving life in the face of that adversity um, is, it can be a challenge. And so we have an impending sense of danger Uh, to warn us to prepare to fight a danger or to run away from a danger. And, I mean, there are stories that you've heard, right, of people who they just had this weird feeling about going somewhere or doing something or being in a certain place, and they felt that they shouldn't go and do that. And we call those premonitions. And whether you think there's anything to it or not, it is certainly true that there are people who have avoided death or injury because they have paid attention to those things. And therefore, we silence or suppress those feelings of premonition at our own peril. And in fact, the reason that we're still here, in some re- way at least, is because of what we could call constructive paranoia. And we saw constructive paranoia, we, we should be clear that the paranoia doesn't mean that you're constantly acting as if um, everything is wrong, but you're aware of dangers and go out of your way to make sure that you don't do something that could possibly be dangerous uh, and avoid what we might consider unnecessary dangers. An example of this might be uh, sleeping underneath trees. Uh, You might calculate, well, there's only a 1 in 2,000 chance that any given particular tree was going to fall on you on any given particular night. And you might feel that that is something that you might be willing to risk. But if you're somebody who lives out under trees uh, every night, um, those statistics make it very sure that at some point, a tree is going to fall and kill somebody. And if you're going to survive, you can find somewhere else to sleep. Uh, there's there's not much on uh, at risk there in terms of uh, going out of your way. So maybe it's just mud not to sleep under trees, right? So that kind of constructive paranoia. Now, can it be taken too far? Of course it can. Any kind of thing under this sun can be taken too far. And we know people who... Uh, Truly, do live in fear, where they are just absolutely convinced that everything is going to be a problem, and uh, live with deep and great anxiety. But we need to notice that in everything God has said about not being afraid, He's also not called us to recklessness, and that's the opposite, really, of fear. uh, of Of fear in a lot of ways. So, what's really wrong with fear? We're trying to suggest that God has made us with the fear impulse to keep us from killing ourselves in many circumstances. But as with everything in God's creation, uh, it can be corrupted and go beyond what God intended for it. So one thing, we might believe there are dangers where there are none. Uh, A good number of times that God tells people to not be afraid is, for instance, in Matthew 17 and verse 7, when he's appearing to them uh, in contexts where he's not expected. Uh, And to see a spiritual being is a terrifying experience, and so we can understand why that reassurance would be necessary. But the big issue with fear is something that we see, for instance, in Hebrews 2 and verse 15, where we're told that Jesus has set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. Now, fear of death is really a big thing, because we're fearing dangers to our lives because we're afraid of death. Uh, We don't want to die. Uh, Fear of death is the tyrant's great weapon to get a compliance from the people. You know, if the king says, I'll kill you if you don't do this, a lot of people are going to do it uh, so that they don't die. Uh, in our fear of death, we, we also try to find some way of finding permanence or mortality here on the earth. And so we build up our towers of Babel, working for institutions, organizations, pouring out our lives, trying to find meaning somewhere here uh, that's something that will outlast us. And of course, a desire to remain young uh, is also in its own way the fear of death. Because what's the problem with growing old? Well, because things fall apart and you die. Now in all these things, the evil one can ensnare us to devote our lives and energies to that which doesn't profit. Uh, we might try to build up an empire here on earth through greed or our efforts, uh, that something that will outlast us to make a name for ourselves. We might pursue the passions of youth uh, in a way to try to maintain that youth. Uh, we can just straight up do things to try to avoid death in ways that uh, often prove unproductive and unhealthy. And we can see in Matthew 10, 28, the issue is not really about whether one fears, it's also who one fears. That we shouldn't fear the one who can kill the body, but not the soul, which would be the forces of evil in our fellow humans. Now, it's not that there aren't dangers there. The very reason he has to say that is because uh, they may actively try to kill us. And in fact, Jesus warns us that in fact, we are going to suffer uh, that danger from our fellow man and from the powers and principalities uh, who empower them. And... There are a lot of times where we might well uh, shrink away from standing firm for Jesus because we're trying to avoid rejection, trying to avoid hostility and persecution, that we're doing it out of fear of such things. And our faith should be in God, and we should honor, respect, and revere God. And our greater honor, respect, and reverence for God should be partly what motivates us to be able to transcend our fears of humanity because... Whatever, you know, we think humans can do, we know God can do uh, even more. And so that's where uh, what Jesus is trying to say is, is, is heading toward. And one of the things about fear is that we should not be afraid of the forces around us when we know that God is above all. And overall, we should instead revere and in the proper sense fear God and to seek to accomplish his purposes. It is not wrong to recognize it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands that live in God and to act accordingly. And so, yes, there can be danger in proving fearful about the things going on in our lives. That's what Jesus is getting at with the anxieties of life in Matthew 6, 25-34. And all anxiety is the apprehension, i.e. fear, of that which over which we don't have as much control and wanting to have some control over it. How and whether we're going to make a living, how we will live or die, how we relate to our fellow people, how and whether we will suffer for our faith. And if it's not about ourselves, it becomes about those whom we love. And there are a lot of people who live by fear, and they don't even see it. And this is such a lamentable thing. And like everything else in life, it's one of those things that uh, we see a lot better with other people than we see with ourselves, right? When it comes to living in fear, we can very much easily see how other people are living in fear. It's much harder for us to see how we're living in fear, like in Matthew 7. And the worldly forces out there understand that fear motivates a lot more than love or goodwill. Machiavelli of the Prince saying it's better to be feared than to be loved. Absolutely not wrong when it comes to the way the world works. And so we shouldn't be surprised when politicians, the media are constantly stoking fear of the other because they can get you to tune in to see how other people are making life dangerous for you or how to avoid this trap or this danger. Or did you hear this outrageous thing this guy that we're saying is opposed to you is doing? Uh, they know that you're going to watch television. They know you're going to listen, tune in and they're going to make money. So we should be surprised when that's how it works out in the world. But what's really distressing and sad is how many people who will say they are following Jesus have also built their platform and their brand on stoking fear of the other. And I want to be very clear about this, that fear-mongering is not the way of Jesus, but of the powers and principalities over this present darkness, as we can see in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, Ephesians 6, and other places. In 1 John four seventeen and 18, perfect love casts out fear. It does this not because there's nothing that we should be afraid of, but because the love of God in Christ allows us to transcend fear, to love our enemies and do good to them. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. So fear really is a bit more complicated, isn't it, than it's made out to be. And a lot of the very same people who might exhort us and warn us, well, you need to live by faith, not by fear, may themselves be living in fear. And there are some times where fear is not a bad thing. Uh, where fear, healthy respect for things, keeps us alive and keeps us from doing dumb things. But we absolutely must be attuned to the dangers that come from uh, fearing uh, anxiety and things, where we are trying to control things we have no control over, that we are not putting appropriate trust and reverence in God, and we are shrinking away from God because of what people may do to us. When it comes to faith, it becomes an entirely different uh, conversation, but just as important and, and just as much uh, about the kind of things we see going on in our society. Because the age of information that we live in could now rightly be considered the crisis of faith. It wasn't that long ago uh, where we thought that all this you know, knowledge that we all had access to was this great thing. And there are still beautiful things about all the access and knowledge that we have through the internet and other sources. Uh, when we talk about the crisis of faith, you might imagine that we're really talking about faith in God, and for a lot of people that might be it, but that's not really uh, the issue. The issue of, of the crisis of faith in our age of information is about who we should trust. Because faith, so many times we talk about faith, we make it about belief and conviction and things of that nature, and we've had other conversations about faith, and, and, and we'll certainly uh, encourage others to consider that, but for our purposes, we need to remember that faith is about confidence and trust. And when it comes to confidence and trust, it becomes a question of to whom do you listen, who will you follow, and whose voice will you heed? Now, Christians are going to tell you, and we all recognize, right? God is the one that we listen to. We should follow God. We should listen to God's voice. Hebrews 11, 1, 6, and other passages. Absolutely. And Christians will understand, hey, if it's not God, we need to be a little skeptical because only God is always right. Uh, No one else is always right. Um, Preachers will often try to remind you uh, if they're worth their salt at least, that um, they can be wrong also. And so uh, you need to be careful in considering what they have to say. And then we understand that it is only Jesus who is the source of all wisdom and knowledge, and we need to find that in him in Colossians 2, 1 through 9. But in all of this, what gets lost is that by necessity, we all have knowledge sources of knowledge that we're trusting in. Uh, because even when we talk about the faith... What do we see in Romans 17 That uh, hearing, you know, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. Uh, we can see from the examples in Acts eight and ten the extraordinary lengths to which uh, the Spirit and angels will go to put people in the face of other people to hear the gospel and to be saved. Um, and so, even when it comes to the faith about God even when it comes to God we are learning from other people and therefore we have put trust in other people in what they have to say and if it's true about spiritual things how much more about things of this world and as we have seen the proliferation of knowledge where what is known by humanity is exponentially growing because of our technological abilities, but also because of the specialization that's gone on, where people have been able to focus their efforts in very specific disciplines and subdisciplines. none of us are able to have all the insider understanding to be able to fully understand and adjudicate what's going on in all these conversations. So we have a time and a place where knowledge is expanding and all the more specialized, but everybody now has more access to information through the internet. And not just access to information, they also have the ability to disseminate information. And so you can have uh, two websites. Uh, one of which looks very polished and great but is coming from somebody with very little expertise and who is more interested in trying to tear down and to build his or her brand. You may have another website that seems much more clunky but is written by somebody who has deep abiding passion and technical understanding of a thing and it'd be very tempting to, to trust the one rather than the other and that's what we see over and over again. And that's Really, the main trouble is not that there's all these different options of knowledge. It's how many of these sources are really trying to cast aspersions on others. They're not necessarily trying to get you uh, directly to agree with them. They're just trying to throw stones at other ideas and trying to cast doubt on other ideas. And a lot of these people, they'll sow seeds of doubt, and consistency's not their forte. Uh, one day, they might uh, challenge and cast doubt on one side. The next day, they're casting doubt and challenging the other side. You would point out that, well, if you're being consistent, that doesn't work together. But it, it doesn't matter, because what really matters is gaining that audience, uh, having that influence, making that money, having that power. And there's always reasons that we can cast doubt on knowledge and other things. And the challenge is that so many times uh, there, there's always room for doubt and challenges, but you, be, you have to doubt your doubts and you have to be able to have the framework and the understanding to be able to make sense of claim A versus claim B. Uh, and it's something that's very hard for people to do. And none of us are fully objective. All of us have our priors and our, our, our tribal affinities and associations, which complicates it all the more. And we live in a time and a place where people are trying to capture your trust by eroding your trust in everybody else. Where if I get you to cast enough doubt on source A, B, and C, you're going to listen more to me and what I have to say, even though I've not done anything to really gain your trust, rather just pointed out the problems to everybody else. And therefore, our time that we live in can be said without hyperbole to be historic in terms of doubt and lack of confidence in anyone and anything. Uh, in terms of government, community, politics, media, organizations, institutional religion, and everything else. We have a lot of doubt. People doubt. People are just convinced that everybody's in for this or that. And of course, there's plenty of evidence out there, right? If you want reason to doubt religion, institutional religion, you have plenty of reason now, as you see all these stories of abuse that was covered up, and all kinds of power games and things going on there. Uh, there's always reason to doubt in government because you have people who have been trying to, you know, cause the government to not function well. And even when those who want to make it function well make mistakes, and we see colossal mistakes that have caused great difficulty. And not only do we have the doubt, we also have conspiracy theories arising everywhere. And that's also part of this whole environment of of a lack of trust, is that uh, people are willing to believe outlandish ideas, but they don't think they're outlandish, because they see all this other evidence, and therefore it just doesn't seem so surprising. Uh, we might think it's shocking and ridiculous, but to them it just seems to make sense of the world. But in all of this, if you've noticed... What we're not lacking trust in is ourselves and our ability to discern. That's the one thing you don't see people casting aspersions on. And that, of course, is a major part of the problem. So what should we as Christians put our trust in? Jesus has told us that we need to beware of putting our trust in people in Matthew ten seventeen, That he said in verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep surrounded by wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So to be wise as serpents demands discernment. We have to remember that everybody has their bias, their agenda, and motivation. And we need to learn how to perceive that and to weigh it against what they would offer. And we need to realize that those who would cast doubt have their bias, agenda, and motivation. We need to be clear about that. We need to try to understand our own biases, agendas, and motivations so that we can be better discerners of such things. But to be innocent as doves is to be unstained of the world, absolutely, but also to be open to people, to give the benefit of the doubt, to want to think the best of people. Now, if you think of that's held in tension. But so is the idea of being as innocent as a dove and as wise as a serpent. How can you be as wise as a serpent while being innocent as a dove? Because wisdom is normally gained through hard-earned experience. And if you're having a hard-earned experience, you're no longer as innocent as a dove. And Jesus puts that out there, and it's a tension that we live in. Because we need to give the benefit of the doubt, but we need to remember the people manipulate and scheme. We want to think the best of people, but we also should not forget the depths of depravity that people can sink into. Because the most trustworthy people can fail, and they can seek to scheme and deceive. And at some point even the biggest con man is going to speak truth. And of all things, we need to be circumspect about our own understanding and about our own powers of discernment, because we're not infallible. We, are, we have biases, our, and our framework is our framework. We want some things to be true and other things less so. And the way that seems right to us is the way of death in Proverbs fourteen twelve, That is not within us to direct our own steps, and that whole, you know, we can see the speck in other people's eye but miss the log on our own in Matthew 7. We need to remember that we are more often deceived by those that we would consider our allies rather than those we would consider our enemies that we need to be as critical about those with whom we agree on a given point as we would with those that we disagree. So we can see why we have a crisis when it comes to fear and faith. So what does it look like to have a life that is faith over fear? And we can see what that would look like from two passages in the New Testament. In Mark 5 and verse 36, But Jesus did not pay attention to what was said, and he told the synagogue leader, Do not be afraid, just believe. Now, this is in the story of Jairus' daughter. He's a synagogue leader. And we're told in verse 35 that his daughter had just died of the illness that she was suffering. And they told her, well, don't trouble, tell him to no longer trouble Jesus about it. But Jesus here tells him, don't be afraid, but believe. And then he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in verses 37 through 42. And in this example, Jairus is not to give in to the fear of death. He was to believe that God raises the dead. And this is our lesson. What does it mean to have faith over fear? We are not to give in to the fear of death, but to have faith in the God who is the God of the living and not the dead. And that God raises the dead. Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, 32, Romans 8, 17 through 23, Hebrews 2, many other passages. And so we're not to give in to the lusts of the world. We're not to fear what the world fears. But we're supposed to put our confidence in God in Christ. Now, I want to be very clear that Jesus did not call believers to recklessness. So one of the things you see throughout the New Testament, uh, some later believers went reckless. Uh, we can talk about Ignatius of Antioch pursuing martyrdom, like telling Trajan he was there and that he was a Christian. Uh, but most examples like Paul took uh, measures to try to preserve his life when appropriate. He made sure the Roman soldiers got involved when he was told of a conspiracy against his life. He let that be known so that he could be moved and not have to endure that. Uh, this was not done in cowardice. It was again a healthy respect and an attempt to continue to accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish. Uh, So we're not called to recklessness, but to a confidence that God is able to do beyond all we ask or think to accomplish his purposes for his glory. In Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. So as believers, we should know that God is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And if we believe that, we will trust in him. We're going to resist the ways of the world that we will not fear. We will just believe. The other example is in 1 John four seventeen and eighteen. By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because just as Jesus is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears punishment has not been perfected in love. So faith should triumph over fear. We see that in Mark five thirty six. Uh, we see that in Mark, Matthew eleven twenty eight that we should rather fear God than those who can do less than what God can do. But what John wants us to see, and this is not a contradiction, it's a development maturity, is that it's not really fear versus faith. It's love versus fear. That's what the real contrast is. Because fear is really about punishment. John's right, right? Uh, When we say that you fear the tyrant, you're fearing what the tyrant can do to you. You're talking about fearing God, even, from Matthew. You know, 1028, it's about fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Uh, that's a punishment, right? Uh, so we're, we're fearing suffering or death or hurt or rejection, something else that we think is punishing. But perfect love drives out fear. We're called upon in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, many other passages, to grow in that love of God. And as we grow in that love of God in Christ, we should be growing beyond our fears both of the world and what our enemies might do to us and as of God, because we're growing in the confidence of his love and grace and mercy and his desire that we will be one with him as he is one within himself and also to be one with one another. Because if we love our enemy as ourselves, we're going to want what's best for them, right? Will we not be willing to suffer whatever depredations? Because we know it's not about them in the end, that we want what's best for them even if they don't see it. If we love God as God has loved us, will we not move beyond terror of hell, but rejoice in the light of his countenance? So I know there's a danger. There's some people who've been very much traumatized by that constant health uh, fire and brimstone preaching of, you know, being afraid of God and have this idea of being terrified of God. Uh, And we need to put that in its proper context, that it exists. It exists for a reason, but. Even in the scriptures, there's an expectation that we grow beyond that so that we are no longer terrified at the idea of being in the sight of God. But understanding why, for others, that might be a terrifying thing. So our growth and maturity should be manifest in our preaching, teaching, and how we relate to one another in the world. Which means that there should be a time where we get beyond the hellfire and brimstone. And we need to stop making it about us versus them. And any other message, that sublimity or otherwise, Uh, try to encourage fear of the other but to be able to look at the danger that we might experience from other people but that we're choosing to show the love of God toward them anyway that's what Peter is trying to get at in first Peter so what John is trying to get at in first John Jesus could only overcome sin and death by dying for the sin of the world even though he didn't sin we are only going to be able to overcome evil by enduring evil and not responding in kind, to absorb the fears of others without becoming fearful ourselves, to allow ourselves to be transformed by that love of God, and to be able to cast that fear out. Now, of this endeavor, we will never end. Uh, because as you grow in life, you realize that uh, there's new sources of fear-mongering, right? There might be us things trying to get you to fear that didn't exist 5, 10, 15 years ago. There are at- things in our lives that we weren't afraid of, not because there was nothing to fear, but because we took them for granted. And then they get exposed to us, and all of a sudden, now they become something that we could become afraid of. And we got to grapple with the possibility of fear in those circumstances. We also grow in awareness of how weak we are and our suffering, and our pain, and our incapacity, and even if we can grow well in not being fearful about ourselves we then get married or have children or we develop deep friendships with people and now all of a sudden it's not even about us but about what will happen to them and all these things we need to choose love over fear because love seeks the best interest of that beloved and does not stifle oppress or suffocate the beloved in the process All of which will happen in a fear-based construct, trying to ensure safety, which is illusory, as opposed to loving and encouraging and strengthening and to show the way of God, who shows us that love himself. And may that perfect love of God and Christ, therefore, cast out our fears. And so the faith over fear is a really important conversation to have. But are many of the people who are crying out faith over fear as a soundbite really willing to have that conversation? Because we are not to be afraid and only believe that God can raise the dead. We are not to fear death or any of its agents, but to trust in the God who raises the dead and can do more than we can ever ask or think. But there's a lot more to fear than terror. And we should understand that there's a spectrum of fear, and that there's some parts of fear that are commended, and others are condemned. And we need to be uh, able to look around and to see, then understand that we perceive the fear of other people better than we perceive our own fears. But really, it's not about faith over fear, is it? In the end, it's about love casting out fear, because we're only truly set free from fear when we're transformed by that perfect love of God in Christ, and that we're living not by fear, but by by love, and faith and love, and love God and our neighbor as ourselves. And that is why it is so important for us all to put our trust in God and Christ, to transcend that fear and love, and to obtain eternal life in the resurrection. Let us pray. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful, Father, for your love and care and provision for us, your covenant loyalty that you've expressed toward us, uh, the deep love that you have for us in Jesus. We're thankful for uh, Jesus and the Spirit, the Word for one another, for all the many material and spiritual blessings that you've given us. We're mindful, Father, that we are still in the midst of difficult times. We pray that you would heal those who are ill. We pray that you would comfort and strengthen and sustain those who mourn or in deep pain and distress. We pray that you provide for those who are in need, that you would support and strengthen those who are in deep distress because of the nature of their work and job, especially medical providers and of the sort. We pray that your righteousness and justice may flow in our land and throughout the world and the creation, that your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, and that powers and principalities would seek to... Advance your purposes and glorify you. We also pray that you'd preserve life in every place it is in danger, whether by natural disaster or artificial crises. We pray, Father, that we would indeed live in faith and not to be uh, living in fear. We pray that you would give us the strength and wisdom and insight to be able to transcend our fears. And to live by faith in you. That we recognize that you are holy and awesome. And that we should revere you. And that uh, there's nothing on earth that can harm or endanger us uh, as much as being cast into hell. And at the other hand, we pray that we would grow and mature to understand and look at you not as the terrifying God. But as a God of love, grace, and mercy. And that we would be transformed by the love you have shown us in Christ. That we would love others. And that we would overcome fear through love. And where we see fear, we would provide love and comfort and assurance and trust. And that we would display that everywhere that we see fear. And that we are not driven by fear. And that we are able to uh, dismiss the voice of the fearmonger And to instead live uh, confidently in love. To love our neighbor as ourselves. To love you and to seek your purposes and to glorify you in all things. And that we would share in that love and to reflect that love and to win people to you in that love uh, and to share in that love. Continue to guide and direct us in the way of love until your son returns and we can share with him in the resurrection of life. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're again so thankful that you've joined us. If you have any questions, comments, we talk like about faith or fear, how you can uh, effectively put your trust in God, love to hear from you. Please reach out to us, subscribe to us where you found us. Uh, Let us know what you think in the comments or reach out to us at adventuretochrist.org or on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We again thank you. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.